It's a bit unusual that the Sunday following Thanksgiving is not the first Sunday of Advent. That is normally the case. This year, Thanksgiving was as early as it could be, and Advent starts a little bit later. And so we're in today sort of this uh, ecclesiastical no-man's land. But actually, it's not. Actually, this is the the Feast of Christ the King Day. It is the the last Sunday of the church calendar. The calendar begins with Advent and the four Sundays we spend time preparing for the coming of Christ. And then we move into Christmas and Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Christ, God incarnate in Christ. And then we move to Epiphany. It means manifestation, and, and we commemorate the, the manifestation, the revelation of God in Christ, not just to a select group of people, but to the whole world. And from there, we move into the season of Lent and spend six weeks contemplating the passion and the death of Christ. And then comes that glorious Easter day when we, we celebrate and rejoice in the risen Christ, And we spend the next 50 days remembering and celebrating Christ who is alive. And then we come to Pentecost. The day of the birth of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the, and the rest of the year in Pentecost is, is spent thinking about how we live and grow as the people of God. As the church. As Christ's brothers and sisters. And now we come to this day, this, this last Sunday of the church calendar, and it is the Feast of Christ the King. And it is a commemoration, a reminder to us that Jesus is the King. That he has conquered every foe. And that he reigns and that the day is coming when he will return and he will usher in his kingdom in all of its fullness. And that we who are his followers are people of the king. I think that's a word that we need to hear, a reminder for each of us because we live in a world in which it doesn't seem sometimes as though Jesus is the king. We we watch this world that seems to be crumbling around us. The 20th century was 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 the time the century where Christians were persecuted more than any other century in history. And it continues this day. And, and in, in countries where, where there's not persecution, there is a sense in which God's people, the church, the things that are important to the church and to the kingdom, are continually moved to the periphery of society and, and are viewed as irrelevant, insignificant. And it feels as though we are running on, on a slick road and going nowhere. And we, and we live in this world where it feels sometimes as though despair and even a sense of hopelessness about it ever changing sort of weighs down upon us. And I think that's the mindset of Israel as Joel's prophecy unfolds. We didn't read the first chapter and a half, but it, it details uh, the coming of locusts upon Israel. And Joel says that these these first group of locusts come and they eat everything they can. And when they're done, the next group of locusts come and they eat what they can. And when they're done, the next group comes and they eat what they can. And finally, the fourth group comes and they pretty much finish it off. And the people are left in despair and hopelessness. 
And more than that, Joel says to them, you guys know why this has happened, right? It's because of your sin. It's because of your sin that God has allowed this, God has sent this, this plague, this devastation upon you. And you need to understand that. And when we hear that, we get a little bit nervous because, you know, we don't like to think that God sends plagues to on people, that, that God would unleash locusts on people just because they sin, as though that's not a big deal. But to the ancient Near Eastern people, that would not be surprising at all. Because everything about the way, the way they view the world is, is the spirit world is what controls everything. See, for us, we tend to think we're, we're the, the masters of our own fate. But for them, it's all about the spirit world. And when two nations come together in war, the winner of the battle is not the strongest army. The winner of the battle is who has the strongest God. And whoever wins the battle in the heavens is going to win the battle on the earth because that God is stronger and that God allows, creates an atmosphere where his people can win. And the things that happen to people in the world are, are the, the hand of God. And Joel says, this is the hand of God. However you want to look at it, this is the hand of God. And the destruction it wreaks is almost unbelievable. And we would tend to say, a lot of the disasters that happen, the things that take place in our world, is because we, we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, we hurt each other. We, we do things that, that create havoc in the world, and we see it all around us. But the reality is when... When sin entered the world that God had created, it didn't just mess up our relationship with God. It didn't just mess up our relationship with other people. It messed up the world, creation. And so you have hurricanes and tidal waves and earthquakes. It is living in a world that has been tainted by sin and and corrupted by sin. And so in one way or another, it goes back to human sin. And we do all kinds of things to just keep making it worse. But in the end, there are times when God does cause and allow things to happen to people. The difference is, for the people of the ancient world, and sometimes often for us, when we think of God doing things, exhibiting his wrath, we think of it as as being vindictive and vengeance. But God's wrath is always an act of grace. It, is always, it always has as its purpose redemption. God is not just being vindictive. He's not just saying, well, I'm getting fed up with you people, so I'm done with you. Take that. But God says, I, you, you people are going in the wrong way. Your lives are are moving toward destruction. And I've tried everything possible to help you to see that. And the only way I know of of getting you to understand it and to wake you up and to to shake you out of the the bad decisions you're making and rejecting me, the source of life, is to do something drastic. And Joel says to the Israelites, this is what God's doing. It's the only way to get your attention. And he does. The thing that would would surprise them is not that God might send a plague or a disease or locusts out of wrath. What might surprise them is that God would do that for the express purpose of redemption. 
And I think that's something that's a little difficult for us to grasp as well. Because God has bigger things in mind for us. God has greater things in store for us. He wants us to experience all that he created us to experience and to be and to know genuine joy and peace and love that can only be found in him. And we keep making decisions to turn us away from that. God is always trying to draw us back to him. And he does it in a variety of ways, but one of them is to get our attention. But Joel says that's not the end of it. Because God has bigger plans in mind than just sending locusts on Israel. He is going to to so transform things that you won't even believe it. And beginning at verse 21 of chapter 2 that we read, he starts talking about the things that are going to happen and how their, their fortunes are going to be restored for the animals, for the earth, for human beings. God is going to bring these things back and restore it on that day. And he says to them, so put away your fear and rejoice because God is doing something amazing for you. Fear is never from God. And we talk about fearing God. But that's partly because we have a hard time finding a good English word to translate from Greek and Hebrew. But to fear God is to respect God, to worship God, to to stand in awe of God. But fear, as we tend to think of it, fear is paralyzing. Fear is traumatic. Fear harms us and, and, and causes us to... To, to curl up in a ball sometimes. And that's not from God. How many times in the Christmas story does the angel come to someone and say, do not fear, because I've come for a, with a word from God. Do not fear. And Joel says, people, don't be afraid. Put that stuff behind you. God is doing something amazing. And this is what, what concerns me and bugs me about... Uh, people who want to talk so pessimistically about the church and the world. I mean, we heard it all the time during the election, and we heard it from both ends of the political spectrum. You know, if this person's elected, we're done for. Life is over. And the other end of the spectrum, if this person's elected, we're done. Uh, We might as well just, just go home because Christianity's dead. I think God's bigger than that. And Joel is trying to help us understand that we don't need to live in that kind of fear. I know it may look desperate. And we may feel as though there is no hope. But this is God. This is Yahweh. And he is at work. And he's doing bigger and greater things than any of us could imagine. And what those blessings are... It's hard to say. For them, it was restoring their nation after the locusts had invaded it and pretty much destroyed the whole infrastructure of their, of their nation. For the church, for the people of God, it may or may not mean that, that we get a little more recognition. It may or may not mean that our fortunes, as we view them materially, are increased, probably less than more. 
But what it will mean, as he says in the beginning in verse 28, is that he's going to pour out his spirit on us. And he's going to do something amazing. He's going to pour out his spirit on all of his people. Young people, old people, men, women, servants, all of those people that you think are at the lower end of the scale and may not, may not really be at a place to, to get God's spirit, they're getting it too. And it's not going to be a trickle. It's not like a, you know, a garden hose that's got some kinks in it and you can barely get any water to come out the end. This is going to be a flood. He is going to pour out his spirit on us. And when he does, there are going to be amazing signs and wonders and miraculous things taking place. I typically find that we, we tend to respond to those kinds of wonders and, and miraculous events and, and the work of the Spirit in one of two ways. For some of us, we, we come to the place where, where we almost worship the signs of God and the wonders of God. For us, those are the end. That, that's the purpose for being with God and for experiencing God, is to see God do these great and miraculous things. And that becomes for us the end point. And everything about life is trying to conjure up another one of those experiences. Try, trying, to, trying to find one more miracle, one more wonder, one more sign. And that becomes the most important part of our existence as Christians. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have people who are so uncomfortable with the signs and the wonders that they want to reject them outright. Talk about them being a part of a, another time and another place and, and God doesn't work that way anymore. And we limit God. I think one of the reasons we do that is because we, we like to be in control. And when the Spirit is unleashed, there's no more control. It's just God doing what God wants to do. And all we can do is sit back and marvel at what God does. And, and you would think that would make us happy, but it, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we like to control everything, including God. And we, we make a little box and we say, God, could you please get into our little box? It would sure make us feel a whole lot better. And we limit God because maybe God doesn't work the way we have created him to work. Maybe God has decided that he's going to, he's going to reveal himself to certain people that we don't think are appropriate or in certain ways that we don't think are appropriate. And we stand back and say, hmm, I don't think that's probably something of God because that doesn't match my theological system. And all the while God is saying, just get on board with me because I'm not going to be limited by any of you. I'm going to do great things and God wants to do great things in your life and in us as a community of faith and as the church throughout the world. God wants to do more than any of us can dream or imagine. Whatever plans we have for God, whatever visions we have of what God can do, what God really wants to do is bigger and wider and stronger and higher and deeper than any of the things we've ever thought about. And putting God into our box is simply trying to confine the one who is almighty. 
and who loves to work in big ways and in small ways. But he loves to pour out his spirit on his people and bless us so that we can bless the world. But you know what? In order to let God have control, in order to let God do whatever he wants to do, we have to be willing to step back and surrender and take our hands off. And that's hard for us to do. But in verse 32, Joel says that there will be forgiveness and redemption for all who call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord is in a, in a nutshell to acknowledge that we need God. That despite everything we've figured out about life, it's not enough. That whatever gifts we have, they're not enough. Whatever, whatever graces we have for ministry and, and life, they're not enough. Whatever we can accomplish, not even close to enough. And we call out to God and say, Lord, it's got to be about you because honestly, I've got nothing. That's what Jesus keeps saying to the religious leaders. He's confronting them about their, their arrogance and their pride. That's why he says to them, if you really want to be in the kingdom, you've got to be like a little child. You have to humble yourself. He says, I came for the people who recognize and acknowledge they are sick. They're weak. They're needy. Those are the people I can do something with. But those of you who think you have power and you've got it all together and you have no reason to to humble yourself are going to miss me completely. And I suspect that's one of the things that we wrestle with, acknowledging our weakness Acknowledging our need for God and for each other. Humbling ourselves. It's such a difficult thing to do. It goes against the grain of everything we've been taught in our society. Because in our society, we are taught that success is, it comes through power. And if you want to be successful, you cannot let people know what's really going on inside of you. You have to be strong. Even if your strength is a facade, you have to appear strong. Because the minute people smell weakness, they're on you. And they'll take advantage of you. And you'll never get to where you want to go. And once again, the kingdom is countercultural. Jesus says, humble yourselves. Earlier in chapter 2, Joel says, rend your hearts, acknowledge your sin, repent. Come to the place of saying, God, it has to be you, because I've got nothing. And sometimes God brings us to the place, like he does Israel, where all we have left is nothing. I, I wonder if that isn't one reason why the church is, is growing and exploding so much more in third world countries and in places where the church is persecuted than it is in this country and in the West. Because it's so easy for us to rely on all of what we have. And God has blessed us immensely and we give thanks for that. But like anything, we can turn it and we can twist it so that now it becomes our security. 
For people in many places of the world, they don't have that. They look at their lives and they have nothing. They, can't, they have nothing to rely on except God. And God uses that and blesses them and does amazing things. But we can humble ourselves, we can surrender, we can take our hands off. Because as Joel says in verse 27, this is God, Yahweh we're talking about. We're giving ourselves to the one who says, I am in Israel. I am with you. I am the Lord, your God, and there is no other. He is different from every other God. It always is fascinating to me when you read the creation stories of the ancient cultures. Is that people are created for either because of, because the the gods are forced to create them. Or because the gods want some people they can use to do their work for them. Or because the gods are tricked into creating them. But Yahweh creates because he wants to. Yahweh creates us because he loves us, because he wants relationship with us. That's why he brings us into existence. And from the moment we are created, he has been wooing us and loving us and and yearning for us. Even when we sin, even when we turn from him. And he continually wants what is best for us. He wants us to know the fullness of all that we were created to experience as people created in his image. This is the God we are surrendering to. This is the God we are taking our hands off of our lives for. This is our God who is like no other. Who is faithful and good and loving. Karl Barth was considered one of the great theologians of the 20th century. Though he was a a leader in the Protestant church, Pope Pius XII said that he was the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas. He was popular in culture. His picture was on the cover of Time magazine, I think in 1962. He he lived through World War II and and he taught in, in Basel, Switzerland. And, and he was, you know, he wrote 12 volumes of church dogmatics. And, and there, not everything we would agree with his theology, but he was a brilliant man and a profound theologian. And he was on a streetcar one day in Basel, and a guy sat down next to him, and they started talking. And he said to the man, so are you new to town? And he said, yes, I'm, I'm just here visiting for a few days. And Bart said, well, while you're here, is there anything in particular you'd like to see? And he said, you know, I would love to meet the theologian Karl Barth. And Bart, he said, do you know him? And Bart kind of got this little wry smile on his face. And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. In fact, I give him a shave every morning. And about two blocks later, this guy got off the streetcar saying to himself, I cannot believe it. I met Carl Bart's barber. You know, sometimes we have such a narrow view of God. And we have a narrow view of life and circumstances and we feel despair and hopeless. 
and we miss what God is doing and we miss God with us because we're looking all different places and we can't imagine that God could work that way, that God could be in that situation, that God could be present when we feel him so absent. But he's there and he's with us. And on this Christ the King feast day, We are reminded that God is almighty, that he is the Lord, that he is in control of all things, whether it appears that way to us or not. And we are reminded that in Christ, God has come to us and blessed us and given us every reason in the world to give thanks. And to worship him and to surrender our lives as individuals and as the church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ, for this great day, for who you are. In our struggles, our feelings of hopelessness and despair. Let us see you in a new light. Let us see you next to us, with us. And give us grace to surrender to all that you are and all that you want to do in your people. And we pray this through Christ our King. Amen.